This week on Flock of Seagulls, what if Steven Seagal was still trying to act? We watched Out for Justice. Guys, welcome to a flock of cigars. With me, as always, is not Michael. He's off this week. He's in France. We'll never be able to fill that void in our hearts. But in the meantime, he's been filling his Facebook feed with some beautiful pictures of where he is right now. So he's going to wish Michael well on the trip he is currently having at the time this episode is being recorded. He is going to be back by the time this is up. So instead of the beautiful Michael, we've got Tony, who is beautiful. The beautiful Tony. Thank you. Yes. And Dan. Hey there. I've got my feet up. I'm totally relaxed at this point. No, that's perfect. Okay. So we just watched Out for Justice and we tried to record a commentary track for it. That didn't work out so well. Really fucked up. That's not something we put behind the Patreon paywall if we had one. (laughs) Or maybe like, hey, if you're really drunk, here's a a distorted commentary for the first third of this movie. Here is a tutorial on how not to do things. Ouch. That really hurts. I mean, the the issue that plagued it ultimately was not present when we started recording. It developed like some kind of disease. No, the issue was Riley and he was present the whole time. It's always been me. Uh, But Out for Justice is sort of, it's a Steven Seagal film. It's an 80s action film made in 1991. You can see why I was kind of panned at the time. I felt like it was almost a movie that didn't matter that it was Steven Seagal. Yeah. Like, anyone could have really gotten away with being that guy. Yeah. He wasn't very enigmatic compared to other roles. Like, I could see that as, like, a low-budget, I don't know, Bruce Willis vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Just, like, any kind of dumb action trope. But it wasn't special. He's just, like, he's a fucking East Coast dude. That's the kind of dude he is in this movie. He he doesn't take no for an answer. He just destroys men with a billiard ball. He wasn't bad at the accent, though. It actually wasn't the worst thing. Well, this is one of the interesting things. is Maybe it was because Steven Seagal actually had to play into a type. Because this whole movie is sort of based around the relationship between the mob and the police force in Brooklyn. A very close relationship from what I've garnered in that movie. He was closer with the mob than the police force. But aren't we all? I mean, this is basically The Departed. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But first... Sure. But better paced. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of lacking the great use of Roger Waters in a sex scene, though. (laughs) Well, we could make that complaint about every movie. Except the Emoji movie. So, in Out for Justice, Steven Seagal is Detective Gino Foligno. So, one of my favorite names for a fictional character ever. Uh, He is a take-no-shit Brooklyn cop, New York. That was implied by Brooklyn. Uh, (laughs) And... You know, he's just out doing his thing, beating the shit out of pimps in the street. 
when his partner, his partner uh, Bobby Lupo, is killed by a psychotic gangster played by character actor extraordinaire William Forsyth. And you really have to give it up to Forsyth in this movie because every scene that he's in, he kind of steals, but also you wish that he wasn't in it. <laughs> like it, it's a beautiful mix of why am I looking at this incredibly obese, not incredibly obese, but just like this man who looks uncomfortably heavy do very slick gangster things and then also try to make love to people in almost every scene he's in. And like, when we say slick gangster things, I mean, like, this would be slick maybe by 1930s standards. He looks like a man out of time. He's got this weird <laughs> woolen overcoat. He's got a shemp from the Three Stooges haircut. He's very greasy. He's got this mustache. You know, he looks like he would have meshed in well with, like, Al Capone's Chicago outfit. Then he just kind of stepped into a 1991 action film. It's like, yeah, I'm going to roll with this. But like with all classic movie villains, Willem Forsythe has a character flaw that other people will ultimately exploit and bring him down. And his character flaw is smoking a ton of crack and then shooting people in the head. Yeah, the general plot of this movie, like all the events revolve around this crack smoking, like vaguely 30s gangster just going around (laughs) killing people. I think if you isolated certain scenes in this movie and like set them to like a really bad smooth jazz soundtrack you would have video interstitials and for like a dare class this is like this movie is about the dangers of crack and this is what happens to you if you take even one puff (laughs) it's just william forsyth shooting a woman uh with a mullet in the head uh at a traffic stop Like just, and this is actually one of the things that I kind of enjoyed about the movie is that there are a lot of little bits where it is people from New York being people from New York and then William Forsyth being like, I don't like this. So I shoot you in the head. Like, it's just sort of, it's like a episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where things get super dark really quick. Yeah. Uh, So as soon as Gino, Gino Foligno finds out that Bobby Lupo is dead, you know, he takes the street. He takes the street with, the tacit permission of his boss, played by Jerry Orbach, who's <laughs> like, you go grab a shotgun and you go do your thing. Like, even though the main character in this movie is a cop, the police are very much absent throughout this entire movie. Most of like the other significant characters are mobsters, like either like classy, you know, mafia, big, one of the big five families kind of dudes, or like just shitty street level gangsters. Is like on occasion Jerry Orbach will like pop up in a telephone scene, like, hey, have you killed that guy with impunity yet? <laughs> Which is probably the best use of him as an actor that there's ever been. He should always be asking, Hey, have you killed that man with impunity yet? <laughs> I it just makes my job on Law and Order a bit easier if I know who the guy who killed. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a, it's a classic tale of a police officer trying to get vengeance. For his dead partner over the course of, I think this whole film is like 24 or 48 hours. Like it's very, very tight. It's not like a regular Steven Seagal film where sort of it's like, oh, but then two days after that person was murdered, someone else was murdered. And we think the CIA is involved. And also your ex-boss is the guy financing this whole thing. And everything just sort of spins into this 
pseudo mindfuck where Steven Seagal is at the center of it. In this one, it's just a guy smoking crack shot a police officer and Steven Seagal ultimately brought justice. He really, like, he changed one time. <laughs> he changed one time, yeah. It's like, the plot of this movie, like the general character dynamics, like the, the stakes are at hand, it is a McBain movie. When I say McBain, <laughs> like I'm talking about the parody Schwarzenegger dude, Rainier Wolfcastle, that showed up on The Simpsons all the time. And his recurring character was like this rogue cop, McBain. It's like- Mendoza! Yeah, it is that type of bog standard action movie that McBain was parodying. But like, there's not a hint of irony. This feels like a parody, but everyone is taking it dead seriously from the, the direction to the writer, the writer being Steven Se- No, it wasn't Steven Seagal. He just wrote several of the songs on the soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, I think this is something that was brought up when we were watching the movie, but like in the, so this is ni- a 91 film. So, uh, but Steven Seagal. So everything that it's based on happened two or three years ago. So for this one, it's like a, it's like a classic 80s film where you're just supposed to, all you're rooting for is for the bad guy to come down and the good guy to win over, out over everything. It's sort of like that yuppie mentality of we can do everything, if we do everything good enough with and with enough cocaine, we'll conquer all and we'll live forever. And we were saying that like during the film, if we were, if you were to remake this film today, it would be like a gritty examination of Wilm Forsythe's character as he keeps doing drugs keeps getting higher and higher and shooting more and more people just the whole world keeps closing in on him and in on him and in on him because he's the only character in this movie sort of outside of the realm of stereotypes everyone else in this film is sort of like hey how's it going have you had more prosciutto you should eat no he's a stereotype he's just a stereotype from a different genre that genre being like pre-code pre-haze code mob movies like the public enemy were it didn't have to end with like the mobs are like receiving justice. It would just be like some asshole being shitty for an hour and a half. Off screen, we've given James Cagney three bottles of whiskey. Let's see how he acts. <laughs> but I think there could be a real thing there where it's like this guy who dresses like he's in the 30s, but it's the 80s and he's smoking crack and also he's shacking up in a house. And like that, that could be a whole. What's that new movie that the Robert Pattinson is? I was in? about to say Good Time. Good Time, Good times, yeah. yeah. Not to be confused with like the hit 1980s sitcom, but yeah, no, like no, just like a day in the life of a scumbag. Yeah, and it slowly closes in, slowly closes in. That could be a really entertaining film. Instead, what we have is a lot of dialogue and monologues in a lot of cases of guys talking about honor and the way things should be and the way things used to be. Yeah, like the older mobsters, which is funny because this came out a year after Goodfellas, which was the main point of which was like dispelling the honorable mobster thing. So even by that standard, like it feels really out of date. It's like there's a very clear cut line between like the old dignified mafiosos and just this shitbag crack smoking asshole with a gun. (laughs) It's like another way this movie feels out of date. I mean, like the action scenes were pretty fun. Yeah, those were solid. Those were well-directed, especially like, okay, so we have to talk about this bar. A lot of action in the movie takes place in this mob-operated bar. It's in the middle of Brooklyn, full of like Italian-American mafiosos, and it's like constantly blasting country music. Like, I'm not kidding around that. That is like some 
Heartland Rock country music blasting out of this Italian mob bar in the middle of New York. Uh, but it is to this bar that Gino Felino goes and searching for information about the guy who killed his partner, Bobby Lupo, repeatedly asks about Bobby Lupo while just destroying men with a billiard ball wrapped in a towel. And this is one of the things that I, it's a shame that Michael isn't here for because he is, he's 10 years older than everybody else on this podcast. He sort of lived through the age of, or he was, he was a youth. He was a youth in search of violence mm-hmm. uh, during the time Steven Seagal, like he probably would have been 11 when this movie came out. Yeah. And so it, it's perfectly aimed at him, which is just sort of like, this is a movie that's more violent than the other action movies that are coming out at the time. And you you kind of get that, like, you understand where he's coming from when you watch this film. Because the, at one point, like, he smashes, in the first instance where he's in this bar, he smashes a guy in the face with a billiards ball. And then he just spits out, like, nine teeth. <laughs> They're all incisors. <laughs> the sound effects during that scene were pretty sweet. Yeah. Oh, the Foley artists, they were having some fun that day in the recording <laughs> yeah. studio. So one of the ways... Uh, Gino tries to get at the guy who killed his partner is by going after this guy's parents, like straight up, like to the, like these beautiful, innocent old people who are just like, oh, I can't believe my son has done this. Like just lovely salt of the earth folk. And Gino is just like basically threatening them, like arresting them, like accuse them of obstructing justice. Also, it ended up really funny moment where we're watching the movie and Riley is like, oh, this guy looks a lot like uh, the old dude from The Sopranos, uh, Uncle Junior. Yeah, I'm like, OK. And it got me like looking up Uncle Junior on Wikipedia on my phone and then to that actor's cast page. I'm like, oh, shit, this is the guy who played Junior in The Sopranos, just like a decade younger. He didn't look. Yeah, he I mean, that movie came out. The Sopranos came out, what, 10 years ago. That movie came out. 25 years ago. So this is 1991. Sopranos, I think, aired in 2000, 2001. Yeah. Uh, and it's definitely not. That was even like the first mob thing he did. He was in Godfather 2 as like Hyman Roth's bodyguard. And I think that's the thing to take away from this movie is this is just kind of a underwhelming mob movie. Yeah, it was just. Yeah, it's like a. it is one part like cop out for revenge action movie and then like another part oh we're just gonna watch some blow level mob scumbags but the way those two halves of the movie collided which is to say very violently was entertaining yeah i mean it, it's a movie where there uh, is a lot of shades of gray in everybody even the guy who is killed in the first have four minutes of the movie Turns out to have not been such a great guy. Yeah, we find pictures of him with like a stripper and not the wife he was supposedly being very faithful to. Shades of gray, yes, but maybe one shade's a little bit whiter because I'm not just talking about the casting of this movie, though it is very white. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, Seagal's character, Gino, who rescues and befriends just the most adorable husky puppy throughout this movie. Yeah, that played no purpose at all. Well, I mean, at the very end, at the very end, yeah, at the very beginning of the movie, man picks up a dog. At the very end of the movie, dog urinates in man's mouth. Do we know why even the dog was thrown onto the street? 
I guess that's like a thing. Like you, you hear about people who go and like drown puppies in the lake by tying them up in a bag and throwing them there. I guess this is like the Brooklyn version of that, which is just to throw it out of your car. The only context we give to that is the guy who chucks the poor pup out of the car has like the bumper sticker, kill them all and let God sort them out. So he seems like a misanthropic fellow who would listen oh, to a yeah, lot of Bill Hicks. Came up later <laughs> but I mean, this is, this is the thing that like, there are so many signifiers in this movie that make it just such a 1980s flick. And that's one of them, which is just sort of like everything that everything that's put on screen is pretty much either in service of making the bad guy look bad or the good guy look good. Yeah. There's not a lot in between. Although Steven Seagal's character, just looking at it through a 2017 lens, the way he treats a lot of people as a cop just makes you groan because it's like a lot of like bludgeoning or slapping or punching or just generally making people uncomfortable in a way that we now understand is like, PTSD causing. But at the time, I think that, like, that's Steven Seagal in his contract. Says, yeah, you it, have to make me look good. Yeah, I think like that's like the asterisk that should be beside every characterization of a Steven Seagal character is like him exerting creative control to make him look like the best, most upright badass. Yeah, he never has a weakness. He has a softness for puppies and he's just. I'm so glad you brought up. Even like, I helped out that kid. Remember, he pulled up the kid. Yeah, bought some (laughs) seltzer off a street kid. (laughs) Uh, But I'm really glad that you brought up the subject of weakness, Anthony, because I found this great little production tidbit. So, just going to paraphrase it here. This was on Wikipedia. During the time of filming while he was on set, Seagal said that. He was immune to being choked unconscious due to his Aikido training. <laughs> End of story, I'm assuming. Right, guys? It sounds perfect. So Please don't ever test it. <laughs> yeah, and the stunt coordinator for the movie is like, okay. So he immediately chokes Seagal unconscious, according to this alleged incident. The guy who choked him out, Gene something? What's the guy's oh, name? Oh, Gene LaBelle was the uh, like the stunt coordinator. I guess I have to step in for Michael here, but apparently he's like a beloved stunt coordinator in Hollywood, or at least he was. Uh, I'm assuming he's passed away. But, um, he's still with us. Is he? Yeah, Good for him. But it was this thing where just, he is this guy who throughout his days in Hollywood has never like boasted about things. He just wants to make sure all of his uh, stunt guys are safe and wants to make sure like everything goes according to plan, blah, blah, blah. And really, really did not want to get into any sort of conflict with Stephen Skull whatsoever. But Stephen Seagal just kept running his mouth and running his mouth and running his mouth and running his mouth. <laughs> and also, like, I think the thing that triggered Gene was that Stephen Seagal on the set of this film was treating uh, the stunt guys really roughly, like not pulling punches and like injuring guys. And so Gene finally did this. He did a chokehold on this guy. <laughs> On Steven Seagal, and it's now the thing of legends that Steven Seagal passed out and pooped himself. <laughs> pooped himself. And pooped himself, and then once he woke up, went into the bathroom. And said that it was all to make the And then came out and just sort of like acted like nothing happened. Okay, so what's better, that or Goku's English voice actor who screamed so hard he passed out in the recording booth? That's impressive. That's just dedication. That is a lot of dedication. 
I will say though, overall, despite how hard Seagal must have been with those stunt people, fights look really good in this movie. This is not the case of even Belly of the Beast, which isn't like, was it made too long after this? Like just like a decade or so? Not a massive amount of time in Seagal's career, but like at this point, like he's not relying on body doubles or like clear body doubles at that. He looks like he is like putting in the physical performance. One of the things I found remarkable is like 87 was his premiere, right? Mm -hmm. Was sort of uh, above the law. Yeah. And that's when he was slim, fit, and had a receding hairline. This is just four years later, and he's already got like a pomp belly. He's had all of his hair replaced or whatever it is that goes on on top of his head. And like just he's sort of, he's got like a big pomp belly going out throughout this entire movie. And it just, it seems like in four years time, imagine if Chris Pratt. Guardians of the Galaxy, but with his Andy Dwyer body. Yeah, exactly. Like it would make no sense. It would never, ever happen. And actually the fight between him and Willem Forsythe at the end would also have never happened because you never have two people whose total body mass equaled over 500 pounds on screen at once. Yeah, the final showdown in this movie is like two plump boys going at it. <laughs> two plump boys. <laughs> boom, 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 two plump boys. Yeah, they had a crossover with a crisscross in the early 90s. <laughs> uh, but two PB represent. No, like... uh Watching this movie, it's like, oh, I'm so glad they were able to give Hank Hill a starring role in an action movie. Wait, which one? Oh, I guess both of them, but I was saying Seagal. He's got kind of that Hank. I, I'm saying that Steve Seagal's character has Hank Hill's build. It's just like the look of a man who spends a lot of his time drinking beer in an alleyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's, to be fair, that seems accurate to the character of Gino Foligno who does not seem like a very erudite, you know, NYPD cop. He probably spends a lot of his time drinking a ton of beer and vomiting in an alley before punching a homeless <laughs> man out. <laughs> but I mean, like, how do you even go from plot point to plot point in this film? Because it's basically one Italian man going to a bunch of different Italian businesses trying to figure out where another Italian man is. And that's the entire film. Threatening their Italian family. <laughs> <laughs> like it it's a close-knit community and made all the more funny realizing that there's not a drop of italian blood in steven seagal i thought he was italian irish is that oh jewish irish that's what it is <laughs> yeah so he carries himself while in the movie voice sounds like he did watch a ton of goodfellas on loop he's trying you have to give him that. That's not a consistent thing throughout his career. He has to act because otherwise there's no movie. Whoever the director was, wasn't giving him slack and being like, or at least there wasn't the Steven Seagal character that he could sort of fall back on at this point. It was, you are this Italian guy in this Italian neighborhood and you grew up. And there are so many long monologues about that, including one about... <laughs> Yes. The rise of safety or disposable scissors in the fall of guys who would work for quarters sharpening knots in Brooklyn. Have you ever encountered a pair of disposable scissors? <laughs> what does that even mean? Disposable scissors. <laughs> One use only. Like disposable camera. That has a purpose. You can do something with like that. Disposable scissors is like, okay, I need to cut this thing open, but I cannot leave any trace 
that I had cut this thing open. <laughs> oh, but no, it comes in one of those plastic packages that needs scissors. What am I going to do? It, uh, there's so much about this movie that just... If you're rich enough, everything is disposable. Whoa. Right? Yeah. So the general vibe from this movie is that it was sort of two to five drafts away from being really a tight script. Uh, maybe two tight at points. Like I, there's at least two uh, montage sequences in this. One of them being set to a Beastie Boys song. I was, we were really impressed they got the rights to that one. They did apparently shoot like a lot of footage for this movie and then they edited it down like, okay, we will slap a bunch of these scenes together into a montage sequence. It's really efficient because you see all these little bits of the story unfolding, but much more quickly than you would if this was like a slow, well-paced drama. Which is great. And actually, one of the things that you have to give this credit for is that, one, they were actually on location. It is a very Brooklyn movie. Uh, And two, all the car effects and things that they do, like there's nothing sort of so extreme that I could never happen in the real world everything in this is very sort of tight and little it's a very it's a small movie it's trying to tell a small story it's a very low budget car chase which i admire because like those are the most believable ones like most of the people that get involved in car chases they are not ryan gosling and drive they are (laughs) guys who probably have a little bit of speed in their system and a lot of money in the trunk they're trying to get rid of I don't know. I don't know what motivates most people to get into car chases. That's just so alien to me that I have to guess. I guess one of the reasons why we're having a bit of a problem talking about this movie is because every scene in this movie is basically either Steven Seagal visits a place and doesn't find what he's looking for and so gets angry and then he leaves and then William Forsyth comes or the exact opposite. William Forsyth visits a place and then probably shoots somebody and then Steven Seagal comes. It got really repetitive really quickly. It's a lot of just like that back and forth and it's not even like sort of a cat and mouse because anytime that Willem Forsyth isn't on screen it's sort of implied that he's in hiding or he's not there or like like there's there's no sense that he's ever in danger of being caught. Yeah, for like a walking piece of shit he's got a lot of friends in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. A lot of places to lie though. And like I just cannot, I think like the only reason people will let him lie low at their place is that they're terrified of him because he is not like, doesn't have an ounce of likability in him. Considering that this film is basically, the idea is a kid who grew up in the neighborhood is being chased by another kid who grew up in the neighborhood, both of who could have been in the mob at some point. One of them did, the other one became a cop, but the cop and the mob are working to chase this guy down. Like there's a lot of just, not happening. It's a lot of, wow, the NYPD is sure fine with like not only letting their very, their presumably famous and well-regarded police detective go off on a vigilante kill streak, but they're allowing him <laughs> to basically work with the mob as he does it. It is a very forgiving NYPD. It is not Ed Koch's NYPD. Like they didn't even back him up at all at any point. Yep, that's the crazy thing is like even at the end of the film, which is traditionally for Steven Seagal heads out there, 
the end of the film is where the the authority figure finally catches on that Steven Skull is right and they come in and try and help him out, but he's already solved the problem. At the end of this film, no backup from the precinct, nothing like that. One guy from the mob drives up and just says, are you okay? You looks like you've been hit. And he goes, yeah, I've been hit. And then it's basically on to the next scene where he's carrying a dog. Plausible yeah. deniability. <laughs> like that's the only that's the thing. Like Jerry Orbach has a very hands-off approach to say, like, yeah, yeah, you do that. I am just going to be here in the office. I brought my backgammon. Just going to have an easy weekend. And so this is the weird thing about this film, which is it feels like there are a lot of different people who are at playing this film, but no one is giving any, no one is given any motivation. So it's just a bunch of people all acting at once. Like Steven Seagal wears a beret and no sleeves. Yes. And- thank you for reminding me of that. He looked like a demolition man cop, like on a casual <laughs> Friday. <laughs> so he looks like that and he sees his partner, which there's only one scene where Steven Seagal runs up front before this man and throws another man through a windshield that suggests that they know each other at all before that guy dies. And that sets off the whole plot of the movie. There's nothing in this at all that really drives these characters. People just keep going back to where they're going because it's in the neighborhood. It's very cat and mouse-ish, but there's no real sense ever that there is a chase going on. Until, like, I don't know how far you guys want to jump ahead. Until William Forsythe goes into a garage and just starts making fun of a man in a wheelchair. Yeah, a man who, by his own admission, hasn't gone laid since 1979. It's 1991. That's that's lost a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, he got really upset about that, too. I mean, just, this movie is filled with sort of strange, I don't even want to call it anachronistic, but just, like, odd moments that it does it doesn't feel like someone improvised it on set it feels like someone wrote this and it's just like this is going to be perfect in this way that i've imagined it but then on screen it was translated into just william forsyth yelling at a man in a wheelchair like taking another hit of crack <laughs> like, like there's not much subtlety to this villain this villain is like the villain in like some kind of after-school anti-drug special. He is everything that could go wrong if you develop a drug addiction. Yeah. And the only way that he and Seagal are related, it seems, throughout this film, is that the two of them have a propensity to just either fondle your nuts or grab your nuts or kick you in the nuts if they think that you're becoming too much of a threat. So there's a great point you brought up when we were watching the movie and like you mentioned, like the sh- relatively short period of time this story takes place across, which is probably 24 to 48 hours. And you, in a terrific moment of empathy, you just sat back and you had us wonder what it must be like from the perspective of William Forsythe's character, who's just like addled out of his mind on various substances, like going on a shooting rampage. Like he doesn't realize, he probably doesn't realize for the most part that he's being tracked down He's probably in a drug-induced haze and just, like, having some final burnout. Like, so if you'd switched up the perspectives a bit, could it have been compelling? It could have been, I don't know, vaguely taxi driver-esque. It could have been really interesting, but it's it's not that at all. It's a Nancy Reagan sort of drugs are bad, you can tell, because this man smoked one bit of crack and then he shot nine people in the head. Yeah, I keep thinking, like, the woman he yanks out of the car who 
you say mullet, it looked like she had two different hairstyles simultaneously. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what a mullet is? Like if you ever watch someone put on two wigs or something like that. And it's just a bit of one peeking out from underneath the other. The, the weird thing about this film is that there's a lot of little texture. There's a lot like there's the dog that he picks up. There's the crime families that he knows. There's uh, the woman whose nipples are so hard you could dial a telephone. That is a very that's, dated reference. That's a good line. But um, like, oh, what, are they specifically referring to a rodeo, rodeo, rotary phone? I guess that's the point there. Well, it could be either way, stuff. yeah. Because if you mashed a boob on a on a touch tone, it wouldn't really you, work. And I've tried. <laughs> Can you dial an my iPhone? own people? I'm not that sick. <laughs> Is a nipple conductive? Probably. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I don't think it would work with like a capacitive touch screen. <laughs> would it sh- well, does it though? I could try. Uh, oh my god this is taking a very dark turn like i think it's kind of hard to describe the plot of this movie because it's not like there's a central thrill or mystery as in the case of say belly of the beast uh like in this case it's more like okay we know what's gonna happen this guy's looking for revenge this guy is trying to avoid vengeance at some point these two shall meet and there will be a bloodbath but in the meantime here are several fight scenes that don't necessarily the whole the uh the pool hall fight scene where he beats the shit out of guys with a billiard ball is constantly asking about like oh who killed Johnny Lupo to my memory he doesn't get any information out of that scene I don't think <laughs> like ultimately like he's able to get information about William Forsythe's location by like arresting his old innocent junior soprano dad yeah and then he feels really bad about it and that gets him onto his uh monologue about how he didn't like that disposable scissors came about. And disposable knives, I don't understand. Anyways. He did really like the, his like signature move in this movie was emptying the clip on his gun. Yeah, and, and racking like, the slide to show that like, oh yeah, no bullets here. This is business, mano e mano. Yeah. And that, uh, but I mean, it just keeps going to this is the ultimate 80s action flick where we need to show that this guy is better than anybody else if anyone else would ever take a shot at that he's not as good as anybody else look at i'll even the playing field i'll just be myself all i got is this towel oh take that japanese guy who's playing fake guitar i killed you with a towel take that other guy you have to spit out nine teeth because i killed you with a towel like it's just it's so and then there's like a guitar solo playing in the background. Yeah, like again, it's such an 80s film. It is McBain without a hint of irony. Without one whatsoever. And it's just, it's so like eye rolling because every element is sort of, this is something that we saw from somebody else. We don't understand why it's good, but we understand that people liked it. So we put it in. Oh yeah, there. like all they don't, all these tropes are included. They don't try to subvert or elaborate them in any way. It is the most bog standard rogue cop action movie ever i get the impression that seagal like watched the infamous mendoza scene from <laughs> the simpsons and like thought like this would be beautiful cinema like i have to make something like this but it's another thing we're like in goodfellas uh t- borrowing from that at one point he tells a guy from the mob about how he was going to the cinema cinema one day and his dad you know was uh going to take him and then 
some guy mouthed off his dad, so his dad put him in the back of his car, and then they went to the cinema with this guy in the trunk, and then Steven Seagal was nine at the time and went to the cinema and couldn't think during the movie about anything except for the guy who was back in the trunk, and then <laughs> his dad took him around to the back and said, open up the trunk, and so he did, and they told the, the guy who'd been kidnapped in the back of a trunk to get the fuck out of here. And th- like at that point, that's when he realized that he could be intimidating even at nine. Like there's just so many little plot points like that that are just sort of scattershot across this film. Yeah. Each one of those seemed to be in a more skilled director's hands. They would be little insights into a character that would develop into this fully fleshed person. But in this, it comes out more like memento. Like I'm just remembering this thing about myself. <laughs> I'm just remembering this other thing. That's how I'm going to act for this scene. But I won't be like that for long. It's like it's memento, but like Guy Pierce doesn't realize he has enterograde amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> and just like he's like keeps like waking up as it were, but then like immediately rolls into just beating up more people. And then like his memory resets again. Like, Oh, where am I? Oh, here's the pool ball. I'm going to destroy your nuts. <laughs> and then, I mean, like the climax of this film is basically Steven Seagal tracking down Wilm Forsyth and he's at a house party. I think. Yeah. It's like, just like uh, a place. There's, there's probably in total, Seven sets in this film. Yeah, and since they're not incredibly well lit, it's difficult to tell them apart. And it's they like, keep like, going back to them. There's like restaurant one, restaurant two. Yeah, like the old classy restaurant who's like ton of leather upholstery. There's like the Mafia Country Bar. Yeah. Oh, like there's a garage at this point because I remember like the one other point in which the police intercede and that's when they just like drive through the garage and just wreak havoc on a bunch of mobsters. Not only that, they run over a man who's recently been shot. And since 1969, we're assuming was in a wheelchair. (laughs) Anyways. I mean, the climax of this film is basically Steven Seagal tracks down William Forsyth, who's been running from him the entire time. And he's been tracking him down for the course of 24 hours or so. And then he finds him in her room. William Forsyth shoots off a bunch of shots him in his gun. This, by the way, is probably the only Steven Seagal film in which they're keeping track of the bullets. Like, <laughs> everybody seems to keep running out of bullets, which is kind of refreshing, but also makes for a sort of a slower-paced film. And then William Forsyth tells him, uh, oh, you're going to kill me? Click, click, click. I don't have any bullets left. And Steven Seagal says, well, I guess this makes us even. Uh, but you're going to wish he did have a bullet left because this is going to be a lot longer. So basically the idea is that he's going to kill him. Those bullets would have saved you a lot of pain. Yes. And then the two of them just basically, it was like watching the beginning of a Properties Brother episodes where they're tearing down everything that they don't like because it's so dated by yeah, throwing each other through it. But mix that with like, it's like watching two seals fight. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the other thing about this fight is like, it's not even like watching two seals fight. It's like watching a full grown walrus and a seal fight because Steven Seagal at no point in this fight is ever anything other than like super in charge. It is very asymmetrical. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm reminded of, oh, was it like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Commando just beating up a dude in like a chainmail tank top? It was like poses no threat to him. And I mean, 
William Forsythe keeps laughing and being like, ah, I'm crazy and on crack. And I mean, the William like, Forsythe story. That's terrible. <laughs> what I've read, William Forsythe sounds like a pretty chill dude. Can you imagine if like in modern policing, if a man went into a building, if, if a police officer went into a building and then just threw around a crackhead until the man died and then shot him six more times. And then was told by a man from the mob that this is excessive. Let's just go home. That would be a terrifying example of police brutality that would not be prosecuted. In this thing, it's celebrated. In like a post-Ferguson world, this film is, hmm, hmm. <laughs> we need to bring things like completely around uh, and talk about the final scene in this movie. Because it rounds off my favorite subplot, the dog subplot, in a way that is inexplicable. Like, in the sense, like, it does not explain why that guy was how that dog ended up in the story in the first place. But so basically, William Forsythe is dead. Uh, Steve Seagal, he's back together with his wife. There's no longer like any estranged or anything. They're just walking along the boardwalk. And they come across the car of the dude who talks. Not only are they walking across the boardwalk, the two of them are walking with Steven Seagal cuddling the dog that he found on the road in his arms. He's cuddling that dog. Their son that the two of them share together is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> the son who literally lives for the one weekend a month, we're told, where he gets to spend it with his dad who dresses like he's constantly in a dojo, but wants to go play ball. That son is nowhere to be seen. But this dog is, this fucking garbage bag dog is, and it's all in service of this one scene. I have my new fluffy son. <laughs> Doesn't make me want to play catch or anything. <laughs> it's like, that's the thing I hate about playing catch. It's like, I don't have good hand-eye coordination, so I can't catch it. But you see... You don't have to worry about that if a dog. Dog just brings it back to you. You don't have to, you know, keep your eye on the ball. Here's the other thing, Neil. He pisses the bed a lot less. <laughs> I'm not saying zero. I'm just saying a lot less. Anyways, Dan, you want to keep explaining the scene? Because yeah, it's ridiculous. And they noticed the car of the asshole from who familiar in the movie tossed the poor puppy out the window while driving on the highway. Uh, Seagal just destroys this man's testicles. And then he and his girlfriend walk away arm in arm laughing as the cute little dog urinates on the incapacitated asshole owner's face. And like, that's just happy that, ending. It's heartwarming and you're in good high spirits as it segues into the credits, which are just more Steven Seagal movie. songs. It's almost, yeah. It's like there was a couple guys on those songs that everyone had credits in. <laughs> and then, some that like Steven Seagal, you could tell, probably wrote like one line and then was like, you need to put me on that song. Now. <laughs> yeah. I'm not averse to movies like having actual scenes or video playing over the end credits. Like The Silence of the Lambs does that very well. Right. Beginning of Predator actually has a bit where like you see the each actor in character, but then they look at the camera and they smile or like laugh a bit. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's funny. There's a mis- this like matches like the tone of this movie, but this is just like replaying scene snippets of scenes we have just watched in the last two hours. And they were all Steven Seagal scenes. Yeah. I'm like, 
it this you're just giving yourself more editing work. Why not just like have these credits roll over black? It was like make sure they know I was a good guy because they got the dog. Make sure I know I was a badass because I had the guy with the thing. Make sure they knew I was nice because I let my gun be empty. Like just bless the heart of every director who has to work with this man and his demands. Just John Flynn, what I've read on like production <laughs> trivia. You seem to have had your stuff together. You seem to have had a law on your plate and rolled with it. So good on you. You had nice things to say about William Forsythe. I mean, I, I feel like that's the best any of us could come out from this film feeling, which is just like, it's not, there's nothing really to latch onto on this. It's so bland. It's so by the numbers. It's so, even at 19, in 1991, it would have, well, I think it was pretty rightfully panned as just being like, you know, why are they making this? This isn't really, I mean, there are some cool Polaroids of a naked lady having sex with another guy at one point, but besides that. I've already forgotten almost the whole movie. Yeah. It feels like every time I speak something about this film, it just disappears from my mind. Yeah. Do, you, do we want to get into final judgments? I think so. Guys, I mean... I, I even I don't even want to ask what did you feel about this film? How would you rate it? What did you Dan? Four out of five. No, I, I'm gonna explain my reasoning. Like it is a weird No, we'll not give you that. Oh, Tony okay. <laughs> No, Dan, go. <laughs> uh so yeah, it is like plotless. It is every 80s action cliche without a hint of irony or subversion. And it's it is just a bunch of scumbags. I don't think there's a single likable character. But compared to the other Steven Seagal works I've watched, it just feels like much more honest and less pretentious. It's just like, but listen. That's what's so great about him. I, I know, but sometimes like there's a bit too much of that. There's pretension in here and like trying to make him like a super good guy with the dog and all that. But I don't know. It's just like very open about like, look, you want to see some scumbags get their ass handed to you. Here's an hour and a half to two hours of that. It has some recognizable character actors. Oh, you like your Law and Order? Here's some Jerry Orbach for you. I don't know. I was entertained. I could not follow that plot, but like I had a fun time watching it. I think Riley's shaking his head, but like, no, it's just like, oh, it just resonated me in a way. You know, something about watching a live action McBain movie with the that exact same <laughs> level of blunt openness about what it is. So that's my verdict four out of five four out of five yeah tony well and it's surprising to say that dan and i combined is gonna be a full five out of five (laughs) 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 but and my one star i think goes to four size haircut (laughs) yeah and that's it that's all i can say is like Look, don't, don't watch this movie. Like William Forsythe, he's the only person who thought that Shemp of the Three Stooges didn't get his dues. He was overshadowed by Curly. Just like, just want to pay tribute to comedic hero. Wow, four to five. So where did he lose the one star? Um, yeah, what was the flaw in this, basically, yeah, in this diamond? Uh, yeah, just basically the fact that the violence that Seagal's character Felino gets away with is like, huh, 
if this movie had a bit more introspection, this could be a great condemnation of vigilante violence and police violence, like in the same vein as a movie I was talking about earlier with Riley, uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah, fuck uh, you, Tony. Oh, <laughs> You were in the room when oh. we were talking about it and didn't even recognize you. <laughs> Sorry, like, you looked to be focused on the movie at the point, and I was just... <laughs> uh, but I think he... I, I just naturally assumed that Riley would get the would appreciate the Wang Chung privy, trivia more. I should not have made that assumption. I, you should have point. definitely made that assumption. <laughs> yeah. That's the correct assumption. <laughs> uh, I mean, now I'm feeling bad. And this is a recurring theme for me that each week I feel bad for how I rated the movie before. And like last week, well, I, yeah, last week I gave the perfect weapon two stars. And I love the perfect weapon compared to this. <laughs> There's half stars. There's half stars, but still. We can we can even go to less than half a star. But I mean, like, the perfect weapon was so much fun because it, maybe it's just the way, different things that we're looking for in Steven Seagal stuff. For me, I love an entertaining bad movie. I don't yeah, like a movie that's just barely competent, which is what this is. Although I do appreciate watching William Forsythe give this movie so much more gravitas than it deserves. and. I mean, he doesn't really do much to exemplify sort of the many different faces of crack. He does <laughs> sort of, uh, he does a lot with what he was given with. And he makes his character, in a less in lesser hands, his character would have been also as unremarkable as everyone else in this movie. But in this one, it, he makes he, a movie. He, yeah, he keeps sticking out in your mind. But the rest of this is just so, so monotonous. And not even like stereotypical Seagal, just stereotypical 80s. Like there's nothing here that yeah. is just like, mm, this is this is something that only Seagal can do. Or this is only something that you see in a Seagal production. Although what is interesting is Seagal's average budget for films has probably hovered around 8 million his entire career. Like 8 to 15 million, I'd say is like. What was this one? I don't know, but I bet it's around that. Like it's funny to see with him because like like 8 million back then probably bought you close to this film, whereas 8 million now gets you the travesty that is the perfect weapon. 14 million for this one. 14 million. 1991 dollars. 14 million, 1991. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that he sort of always worked in that budget and yet his films, you know, sometimes look good. A lot of times don't like this one is very competently shot. Like everything looks good. Everything sounds good. And for the time sort of thing, it's, there's no problems there. The problem is just that it's not like it's it's a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. Whereas now Steven Seagal films are unlike anything you'll see from any other action hero of that time. Mm-hmm. Although I can't wait to see his version of like Looper or something like that. That would be amazing. I mean, hey, William Forsythe looks like he just stepped out of the 30s. <laughs> There's a pimp at the beginning who looked like he just walked out of Shaft. So like... There is some time fuckery going on in this movie. That's true, but it's not enough to make me ever recommend this film. I give it a half star. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. What does it get a half star for? It gets a half star for all the times where someone is monologuing and the writer of the film did not give <laughs> a thought as to how these words would age whatsoever. You could kind of, when Seagal was doing... Some of his monologues, you could tell that he was like, I'm really good at this. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it is one of the few times where you do get to see Seagal trying at acting. Yeah. Okay, I think just to elaborate on like why I've given this like as ridiculously four high stars. Score, yeah, four stars, ridiculously high. I just find his character in this like more charming in, in the way that like oh he's an honest dirtbag. It just like yeah he's like this fucking guy from the neighborhood who is good. My voice is kind of slipping into his like <laughs> yeah. I don't know, compared that to really wise and considerate uh, ex-FBI or CIA guy in Belly of the Beast and really creepy dictator in The Perfect Weapon. It's just like, okay, this is a guy who I would avoid at a bar, especially if I didn't want to get a billiard ball to the face. <laughs> but like his, his active presence would not piss me off as much as the other characters I've seen him play. But I feel like the those other characters, like Belly of the Beast, so, well, I guess maybe the Thailand theme more informs it than anything. But then, like, uh, The Perfect Weapon, those are scenes where it's so ridiculous that almost Steven Seagal's presence sells them. Take Belly of the Beast and Steven Seagal's flipping over and then sliding across <laughs> the floor to avoid detection. If you had a young, svelte nubile action hero guy do that it would just look ridiculous but in this it, when he does it when steven seagal does it it just plays into sort of the joke like it's almost winking at the, the steven seagal persona whereas this like yes he's trying at acting and like he showed up each day sort of ready to do stuff but it doesn't really it doesn't do anything for me i already feel like we've like made this movie better than it is by talking about <laughs> this is mostly being like a prey this is mostly just being communal praise for the chops of William Forsyth rather than anything Seagal himself yeah. had a hand on in this movie I mean William Forsyth if we were just to rank him I'd give him five I'd give him four stars <laughs> yeah rank of, of Forsyth characters compared that's to that's still only because of the background that he's playing against like he was just good Compared to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fair. What are we saying for next time? I think the pistol whipped. That looks fun. His 2008, all it's coming up on its 10 year anniversary, pistol whipped. He is a, I don't even know. The trailer doesn't give any information away. It's better. It's better that way. I mean, the, a priest tells him that he's divorced and he gambles too much. But besides that, we have no idea what the movie's about. That's just his life. I don't think that's the movie. I mean, yeah, that sounds very autobiographical. <laughs> I think that was just to try to get you to watch the movie. Steven Seagal. This is Steven Seagal. Get back to the trailer. So they like took 50 seconds from Steven Seagal's intervention episode yeah. and just put it in for the trailer? Yeah. <laughs> Title coming soon. <laughs> Pistol whipped. <laughs> All right. Pistol whipped. Pistol whipped. Let's do it. Pistol whip. We'll catch y'all in two weeks. This way too long for what a shitty movie it was. <laughs> for Flock of Seagulls. <laughs>